We are in the process of buying the building in which you are now sat. And this is a great moment for us as a church, a big challenge. And uh, I want to take time this morning um, to put this in a Bible context to find out what the Bible has to say. Here is some background on the screen and uh, if you'd like to know more you'll find that within this particular pamphlet. Uh, don't look at it now but please take that away. There are more of those on the table at the back of the church. But uh, in very brief order, in 1876, the Brighton Railway Mission started a very small group of people meeting in Brighton Railway Station, only about half a mile or so from here. In 1894, the numbers of people meeting were so large that they needed to buy a permanent place, get into a permanent place. This became the place in 1894. The mission work to railwaymen became less and less as less employment amongst the railway workers occurred during the 1960s and in 1982 uh, what was a mission was transformed into a church which is what we are now Calvary Evangelical Church in the 1990s there was uh, a period of great uncertainty and disagreement between ourselves and the National Railway Mission about who owned the building and this went on for a long period of time and it was a very difficult period for those who were here in the church at that time because of the uncertainty as to whether they might be able to carry on in this particular building. Uh, this came to a good conclusion in 2005 when there was a memorandum of agreement or understanding between the National Railway Mission and Calvary Church uh, whereby uh, we agreed to behave in a Christian manner toward one another in the way that we would deal and the National Railway Mission became the landlord and the church became the tenant and uh, on the basis of the smallness of our size and also the, the fact that we both believed we owned the building <laughs> there was a, an arrangement and understanding so that we paid what is very, a very modest rent it's actually £2,500 a year in 2005 that was the rent that was agreed currently if we were trying to rent this building it would probably cost us about £30,000 a year so you can see that we're paying only a proportion of that and that's a reflection of the fact of this sort of um, disagreement that was occurring about who owned the building now there's a big big story behind that I'm not going to go into any of that but just to say that last year uh, an idea arose and uh, this has been followed through so now over 12 months later we're in a place where we have an opportunity to actually buy the freehold of the building so it becomes ours and we're not in any longer a tenant but we actually own the building and the figure involved in buying the building is 162,500 pounds which is a great deal of money but not as much as it might have been <laughs> and uh, we as a church have actually decided overwhelmingly to go forward with this process and uh, this Sunday and the next Sunday is about setting this into context so that everybody's up to speed and we go through this process in a way which we trust honors God. Does the Bible have anything to say? I say what does the Bible say but it's an obvious and a fair question. Well, does the Bible have anything to say about us buying a building for 162,500 pounds? And uh, it's a fair question. And you might be coming here today and saying, I come here on a Sunday morning and what I expect on a Sunday morning is to hear something that's going to do good to my soul because I find it jolly hard to live my life and I need something from the Bible that encourages me to be a Christian believer in this world. Does the Bible only deal with matters of belief and ethical behavior? Do unto others as you would have them do to you. Is it my job this morning to sort of find those passages in the Bible that encourage you to get on with your neighbor and to behave properly in the workplace? Indeed. Is it the job of the preacher to be making clear the truth which is uh, declared in the Bible concerning Jesus, who he is, uh, where he comes from, uh, what he has come to do and so forth? Indeed, indeed. But is there anything else for us to learn from what the Bible has to say? 
I believe there is. And in fact, I think it's a big shame when we kind of put those issues of belief and ethical behavior into some great box there and we say, well, all the rest of life, I'm just going to trust the Financial Times or the Daily Express or my next door neighbor or what the Metro is saying as to how I make the decisions of my life. Now, I think that's the devil's tactic, actually, to cause us to sort of compartmentalize the Christian life as if it was just something to do with what we believe and how nice we are to people. Wouldn't it be great if we had a God who was in complete control of the whole world and all the situations of life and was concerned about your job on a Monday and your purchases on Saturday? Wouldn't it be great if there was such a God there? And there is. And there is. That is the God we come to. The God and Father of Jesus Christ is exactly this God. He's not asleep from Monday to Friday and just wakes up on a Sunday, but he's concerned about your new job on Monday, Argie. You're starting hairdressing job, aren't you? We pray for that, not in a kind of, oh, I suppose we ought to pray for it, but because God's in control of that situation, and it's so important that you know the presence of God in your life in that way. As we pray for the Harpers, who were interviewed this morning by the Evening Argus, nice pictures taken, no doubt you'll see them in the press because they're moving into the Barrows, which is a new building in the open market. Fantastic, great opportunity. But it's not just of interest to the readers of the Evening Argus, it's of great interest to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this topic that we're tackling today I'm very pleased to say the Bible has something to say about it I'm delighted really because it's an enormous challenge isn't it 162,500 pounds have you ever seen that much money it's a lot it's the biggest amount of financial challenge that this people in this building have faced since 1894 when the building was purchased and I can't quite see it from here but something in the region of 2,500 pounds it's just behind Martin's head that's it, that's it. 2,500 in 1894 162,500 in 2013 it's a great deal of money and I have to immediately say to you there's nobody else out there who is looking to give us that sort of money zero nobody it's down to us. We're not looking to the government. We're not looking to Brighton Hope Council. We're not looking to the local community or anything like that. We're looking to the Lord in this respect. And as those who are committed members of the, uh, the church here, this is our challenge. And there are 27 members of the church here. 27 members of the church. And we're facing this challenge of raising 162,500. It's an enormous challenge, isn't it? Very interested to note that up the, up the road, there's been a rather similar kind of process going on in relation to a place called Exeter Street Hall. Have anybody heard about it? Right, okay. As it happens, St. Luke's Church up the road, wanting to sell the hall, and they're selling it to the local community. And the way the local community are going about it, very properly, is they're encouraging all the people who want to have a part in that building in the future to actually buy shares in the building. And as they buy those shares in the building, uh, they have developed a very complex, detailed business plan as to how this place is going to be profitable. I want to tell you something. We don't have a business plan. It's God's business. <laughs> we don't actually have a business plan. We don't have a way of saying, right, if we let the place out for yoga on Monday and Tai Chi or whatever it is on Tuesday and so forth, that we would be able to get enough income to do 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 We're not going about it that way. But what we are doing is we're trying to understand what God might have to say about this and to respond to the message of God on that. I want to say that there is something here for all of us. 
So you come here from different countries, you've just sort of landed in Brighton, you pitch up at the church here this morning, and you think, what is this about? <laughs> How does this apply to me? Well, all I can say is that I have a strong thought that the Holy Spirit of God has a way of speaking to all of us today and that there will be things that are said this morning that will give you principles that will be applicable in your life. Not just about this particular topic, but about the decisions that you need to make in your life. And it may just be that as you're here today, you're not a Christian yet. You may be interested, but you're not a Christian yet. Well, I hope that as we look at what the Bible has to say and the way that God's people handle the truth of the Bible, that might be quite inspiring. You might think, well, that's a different way of doing life. I never thought I could do life that way. But it's true. Christians are people of the book. And we don't believe that this is just something that has to be dusted off on a Sunday so that we can do the right formulas. It's actually a place where God speaks to us. And he'll speak to us individually and he'll speak to us as a church because he loves the church. So, what might we look at? Plenty of places I could look at there. And when you think about giving in the Bible, your mind immediately goes to those passages in Corinthians. We're not going to look at those passages, great as they are, and you'd think those are the natural places to go to. But I actually want to go to this place on the right-hand side, and uh, this is a model of the tabernacle which God commanded to be built by his people in the wilderness. When they left Egypt, and almost immediately after they came out of their captivity in Egypt, God called Moses for a very detailed conversation where he gave him complete description of what he wanted the people to build the tabernacle. It's that we're going to be thinking about today and seeing how it relates and also how it does not relate to us. And we're going to now have a Bible reading, please, from Lindsay, from several passages in Exodus. Thank you. Good morning. Um, so the first reading will be from page 83, Exodus 25, verses 1 through 9. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from each man whose heart prompts him to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair, ram skins, dyed red, and hides of sea cows, akasha wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastpiece. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. And then we'll go to page 94. Verse 30, uh, 35, verses, beginning at verse 4. Materials for the tabernacle. Moses said to the whole Israelite community, This is what the Lord has commanded. From what you have, take an offering for the Lord. Everyone who is willing is to bring to the Lord an offering of gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, and hides of sea cows, akasha wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastpiece. All who are skilled among you are to come and make everything the Lord has commanded. The tabernacle with its tent and its covering, clasps, frames, crossbars, posts, and bases, the ark with its poles and the atonement cover and the, and the curtain that shields it, the table with its poles and all its articles and the bread of the presence, the lampstand that is for the light with its accessories, lamps and oil for the light, the altar of incense with its poles, 
the anointing oil and the fragrant incense, the curtain for the doorway at the entrance to the tabernacle, the altar of burnt offering with its bronze grating, its poles and all its utensils, the bronze basin with its stand, the curtains of the courtyard with its posts and bases, and the curtain for the entrance to the courtyard, the tent pegs for the tabernacle and for the courtyard, and their ropes, the woven garments worn for ministering in the sanctuary, both the sacred garments for Aaron the priest and the garments for his sons when they serve as priests. Then the whole Israelite community withdrew from Moses' presence. And everyone who was willing and whose heart moved him came and brought an offering to the Lord for the work on the tent of, of meeting, for all its service, and for the sacred garments. All who were willing, men and women alike, came and wrought gold jewelry of all kinds, brooches, earrings, rings, and ornaments. They all presented their gold as a wave, wave offering to the Lord. Everyone who had blue, purple, or scarlet yarn, or fine linen, or goat hair, ramskins dyed red, or hides of sea cows brought them. Those presenting an offering of silver or bronze brought it as an offering to the Lord, and everyone who had a kosher wood for any part of the work brought it. Every skilled woman spun with her hands and brought what she had spun, blue, purple, or scarlet yarn, or fine linen, and all the women who were willing had the skill, and had the skill spun the goat hair. The leaders brought onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastpiece. They also brought spices and olive oil for the light, and for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense. All the Israelite men and women who were willing brought to the Lord free will offerings for all the work the Lord through Moses had commanded them to do. Then Moses said to the Israelites, See, the Lord has chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, ability, and knowledge in all kinds of crafts, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of artistic craftsmanship. And he's, he has given both him and Oholiab, son of Ahizamach, of the tribe of Dan, the ability to teach others. He has filled them with skill to do all kinds of work as craftsmen, designers, embroiderers, in blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, and weavers, all of them master craftsmen and designers. So Bezalel, Oholiab, and every skilled person to whom the Lord had given skill and ability to know how to carry out all the work of constructing the sanctuary are to do the work just as the Lord has commanded. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much. Well, what a, what a great passage. And I hope we're going to enjoy it as we look at that in a bit. We're going to sing first, though, and it's number 868. Thank you, Adam. Great passage. And there are plenty more around the, that, those passages that give great detail about exactly what God wanted his people to do, which is the reason why it's possible to build a model of this tabernacle. If you want to get some idea of the size of this, you can see there's a sort of a tent, tent affair uh, all the way around here, that enclosure there. Right, that enclosure is about three times the total length of the building at about the width of this hall and the one next to it. That's, that's the size. And uh, within this, there is a special tent, the tent of meeting, and that tent would be about the length of this entire hall, not quite as wide as that, and only about half the height. It's rather interesting, isn't it? Sort of sense the, the, the scale there. And uh, there's a lot of detail in this particular model because there's a lot of detail in the passages in the Bible here. Everything uh, is based upon a wooden frame. So it's almost like windbreaks here with uh, cloth in between timber posts and all of the, the tent of meeting comprises lots and lots of poles with cloths and so forth. In the foreground here is the altar of sacrifice. Priests clustered around it, sacrifice going on, morning, noon and night. And there is also um, a washing, washing place here. So after the sacrifice and before they go into the tent of meeting, they wash their hands. And inside the tent of meeting, uh, there is uh, 
a big room here called the Holy Place. You can see candlesticks there, and uh, there's a, a place where incense is offered to God, and also a place where bread is laid upon a table here. And here you see the, the Holy of Holies. This is where there is the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark in which the Ten Commandments were to be placed. And there is a big curtain between the two areas, and this big curtain right the way across. Only one person goes into this place, and only once a year, and that's the high priest. Once a year, one person. That's how holy and special this place, this place is. The priest can go into this area, but this, this area is only allowed for one person once a year on the Day of Atonement. We can do this model because the Bible is very detailed about exactly what was intended. So, perhaps we're drifting away from buying our building here, but maybe not. Let's just think about what is not the case. Firstly, I have to say, this building is not the house of God. You might be a bit shocked about that. You might have thought, this is exactly where I, I believe that God would be. But I have to say, God is as present immediately outside that door as he may be here in this room. But it was certainly the case that for the tabernacle that we read about here, it was the house of God. It was the dwelling place of God. His very real presence. That's why it's called the tent of meeting. Not because the people met there, but because God met with his people there. You see, there's a difference. God meeting with his people in a special kind of way because he is especially present in the tabernacle. It is not the house of God. I come from the Roman Catholic tradition where the bread is changed miraculously into the body of Christ. And then in Roman Catholic churches, there is a special place where this consecrated bread is placed. And that's a very holy place. And only a, the, the priest can go into that area, as it were, and take hold of that special bread. It's the same sort of idea. But it's not actually the Bible idea. It's not a New Testament idea. It's um, something from the back of the past. So I want to say that. We don't believe that this is a kind of consecrated ground, this building. The consecrated ground was, as I say, in the Old Testament times in there this building is not a visual illustration of some important spiritual truths it certainly is the case that almost everything connected with this structure had visual implications people could look at those things and they could learn important spiritual lessons so they saw the sacrifices being made day after day after day. They saw the priests making the sacrifice. They learnt that the sacrifice had to be special. It had to be dealt with in a special way. Blood had to be poured out and spilt. The hands had to be washed every time they went into a holy place. All these things speak. They're visual illustrations. And for people at that time, it was very important for them to have that visual illustration to be taught truth concerning how holy God is, how sinful we are, and how a sacrifice needs to be made in order for us sinful people to come close to a holy God. And wonderful, in a way, the illustration that this high priest alone could go to, into the very, very holy place where God is, the people couldn't, only the high priest. We have a high priest whose name is Jesus, who has gone into the holiest place. And he represents us, not once a year, but all the time before God. And he stands for us on our behalf. And it's his one sacrifice, once for all upon the cross, the blood that he poured out, that is the forgiveness of our sins. Not just for now, but forever. Not just as a temporary sticking plaster upon the wrongdoing of our life, but as a sacrifice which is completely pleasing to God. And he is the sacrifice who has stood in our place. 
he is a lamb who has been slain whose blood has been spilt he gave up his life for us how wonderful we have a sacrifice we have a high priest we have a prayer which is going up constantly before the throne of God from Jesus Christ and all because of this we are able to say well hallelujah praise the Lord (laughs) and we pick up our Bibles we read about these truths in the New Testament language this is helpful this is helpful but we're not looking at these pictures now because we see realities and the realities have to do with Jesus Christ and these are the things that we read about in his word and especially the gospel accounts and the applications that are made in the letters therefore we put greater store upon the reading of God's word and the spiritual understanding of it than attempting to put pictures on our walls to display these truths the truths have been brought to light in Jesus and that's why it's a rather plain building again I was in a Catholic tradition and where I went to school there was a very ornate chapel it was colours everywhere everywhere you looked there was something to dazzle the eye and so forth but I have to say that's quite a big distraction from knowing God in our hearts by the power of his spirit so that's another thing which is not nor is it an icon or a monument as much as I love the place it is not an icon or a monument it is not this building which is where Salisbury Cathedral indeed Salisbury Cathedral lovely place fantastic history amazing but I struggle in a way with it in a way I struggle with it because it kind of is removed from the simplicity of the relationship with God which uh, a place like this encourages this place doesn't shout it is very functional the temple of God is not the tabernacle and it's not Salisbury Cathedral but it's actually the people of God indwelt by the Holy Spirit that's awesome isn't it you look at yourself and you think I'm not very beautiful (laughs) I'm not very impressive no one really wants to look at me Jesus Christ says no you're wrong you're absolutely wrong God dwells with his people not in a tent but in our hearts and as we meet together like this we are the temple of God so it's not those things but it's not nothing it's not nothing the building does matter and I'll give you some practical reasons why it is important most of these photos are rather old they show how far we've come we now have cushion seats rather than hard ones (laughs) but it is a place of meeting it is a place where we can meet interesting that in the early days of the church they met where in the temple courts because that was the biggest place of meeting that was kind of currently available everybody would say to their brothers and sisters let's meet in the temple courts we all know where that is and so they met it was a convenient place for hundreds of people to meet together at the same time and that's what they did and that's what we do by having a place like this we can meet together that's important it's important we don't have to be in little groups of three and four meeting in different parts of a building we can all meet together like this and all hear God's words old picture this is a place of listening to God's word that was one of the things that the early Christians spent a great deal of time doing listening to the word of God in the book of Nehemiah we read about how all the people got together and when they got together there was a special platform built upon which Ezra stood to teach the word of God so even to the extent of why we have a platform so that everybody can see the preacher it's really quite important that you hear the word of God through a living person you could easily hear it through the internet I'm not saying there isn't blessing associated with it 
But I think there is a special blessing associated with coming together and hearing the word of God through a real person who everybody can see. Because God has chosen that method as a way of blessing his people in particular. It's a place of listening to God's word. It's also a place of prayer. A place of prayer. When uh, the Apostle Paul came to Philippi, he, um, he went down to a special place by the river which was known as a place of prayer. It was a quiet place. It was a convenient place. It was actually out of the city of Philippi. And he went there because he knew that's where people would be and where they'd meet together to pray. And it's a lovely thing that we can gather, just cluster our chairs around and we pray. That's what we do on a Sunday morning and a Sunday evening and on Wednesdays as well. Do come along on Wednesday night. We meet together, cluster together. We have a place of prayer. It's also a place of gospel experience and service. And I quickly took photographs of Lindsay and whatever (laughs) on Friday night food is extremely important there's going to be a meal after this service uh, today we can serve the Lord together here and we can do it in all kinds of ways putting chairs out stacking them up again getting ready for meals encouraging one another sitting alongside people we are not little ice icebergs sort of all separated from each other no we are all together clustered together so that we can serve one another and God together and we look forward to the fact that as that happens God by his spirit (coughs) grants experience of himself to us it's also a place of testimony where we can tell the stories of what has happened the stories of God's mighty acts so you'll see clustered around the building here plaques plaque to your left Mrs. Gates Mr. Purser up here so these people lived a long time ago um, but they have great stories to tell and it's fantastic we can come into a building where we can say to one another these are God's mighty acts in days gone by Christianity wasn't invented in 2012 it's been around for a long time and our fathers and their fathers before them and their fathers before them they knew this God that's very strengthening for our faith very strengthening to know that people generations after generation have followed God in this way we need to know the stories and we will pass these on to our children and they will pass them on to their children as well there won't be room to put more plaques up but we have to keep these stories in our minds in some way and pass them on to the next generation a testimony as the people uh, went into the promised land they set stones up they put stones up when particular things had happened particular great things had happened so the children would say what do these stones mean and the mothers and fathers would say yeah on that day God provided for us on that day a great victory was won and this is all a great encouragement the stones of testimony and it's the same for us and it's a legacy now here it is this isn't your current baby this is a long time ago baby (laughs) it's a great picture isn't it of this and Liz and Judy represent three generations here in the church at this time and so we look back by testimony but we look forward as legacy so we have these children and amazingly these children will grow up and one day God willing they will be serving in the church not all of them some will go to other places no doubt but we're looking forward to the future as well so this is what this place means I've given you some pretty practical things it's also an opportunity for stewardship and one of the great things about being a follower of Jesus Christ is that we are put in as stewards of the things that God has given us economic wisdom if I'm paying nearly 30,000 pounds a year to rent this building we're not doing that at the moment but that's where the trend would be then you can see that to pay 162,000 is actually quite a good deal because I'd have exhausted my rent after six years five years and I wouldn't have got anything to show for it at all economic wisdom what would you do if you're buying a house would you prefer to be renting your house at that sort of figure or wouldn't want to buy it it's pure sheer economic wisdom and it's important for us to be able to leave 
a legacy debt free for the future generation. And we are safeguarding for the future. Um, I have to say that we are not going to be living in future days in a benign environment. The governments of the country will not be benign towards Christianity in a way that it was a hundred years ago. The council in this city will not be benign to this particular group as far as we're, they're concerned we may be another sect. We get no special favours from the council in the city. There are also quite disturbing trends in churches that you might have regarded as evangelical in the past and uh, in future days. We may be surprised to find that churches that we thought felt the same way and believed the same way as we did don't actually do that. So as we speak, there are churches which are owned by denominational bodies and they're finding themselves in tension with those denominational bodies. Now here's a hard one. Do I leave the denomination because I'm not happy by the way they're thinking? If I leave the denomination, I lose my building. It's a tough one. And it's a tough one as well. If you're renting a building which belongs to the local authority, might be a school and so forth, and you say, I'm not prepared to do this particular kind of a ceremony, The local authority might not be very happy but your attitude on that they might say I'm not going not to let you rent this building got to be very hard nosed about this and say for us to be protecting our future and the belief system that we have and the practices that we believe are important and right in God's sight it is very very helpful for us to have control of the building What do these two passages tell us as we hurry on quickly? I want to say this first of all, so please turn to the, those passages in Exodus. <coughs> now, if you went to, if you flick back pages, if you flick forward pages, you'll, you'll hear this constantly, this constant refrain. The Lord said to Moses, the Lord said to Moses, do this, make that, set this up, make that, command. Lots and lots of verbal communication that God gave to Moses. And what to say, the first thing here, and the big lesson for us as we go about this work, is that we, are, we need to listen to God's voice. There are lots of other voices that might tell us how to go about this process, but we want to listen to God's voice secondly we need to be doing things in God's way Exodus 36 verse 1 says this so these craftsmen and every skilled person to whom the Lord has given skill and ability to know how to carry out all the work of constructing the sanctuary are to do the work just as the Lord has commanded so it's not only a question of hearing what God says but actually doing it and you know that those two things don't necessarily always go together you can hear but not necessarily obey the wonderful thing is that these people actually did exactly what God told them to do many instances in the Old Testament times when God's people didn't do what he told them to do but in this case they actually did it's wonderful they didn't skimp on the materials. They didn't decide, well, I'm not, blue isn't the favorite color at the moment. Let's try another one. They didn't say, well, gold, expensive. We could actually do without the gold. We'll, we'll go for silver instead. They did exactly what God wanted them to do. They did things in God's way. So in chapter 39 and verses 42 and 43, the Israelites had done all the work just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses inspected the work and saw that they had done it just as the Lord had commanded. So Moses blessed them, and of course he did, because he was delighted, and he said, you've done well. So doing things in God's way. 
Next point. Everyone is involved. Chapter 35, verse 5. Everyone who is willing to bring is to bring to the Lord an offering of gold, silver, and bronze. Moses spoke to the whole Israelite community. He heard the word one to one. God spoke to him on the mountain. He told him what to do. And Moses faithfully came down and he spoke to the whole group of people. He didn't just single a few people out and said, you're in the know. He spoke to the whole of them. It was a massive group of people. The numbers are very exact. In another place it says there were 603,000 men above the age of 20. 603,000 men. How did he communicate to that large number? I don't know. But that was what God told him to do. And that's what he did. He spoke to everybody. Which is kind of what I'm doing now. Everybody is to hear this. It's relevant to all of us. From the smallest to the greatest, to the youngest to the oldest, they were all to hear what God wanted them to do. Everybody was involved. What does verse 22 tell us? All who were willing, men and women alike, came and they brought things with them. Everyone. It's a lot of times it says everybody, everybody, everybody. That's what they all did. Lovely to see, lovely to sense. If there are 600,000 people out there, I think you could probably think, it's not going to make much difference if I don't join in this. Because there are 599,999 other people who will do it. But that isn't what happened here. Everybody, amazingly and wonderfully, got involved. They caught the vision. They understood their responsibility. And they did something about it. Skills were recognized and used. Now, you've seen those complicated names, Bezalel and Oholiab, and so forth. All who are skilled, verse 10, among you are to come and make everything the Lord has commanded. Don't be shy. Everybody has skills. And this is exactly what happened at that time. In fact, God put his finger on a couple of people and said, I'm particularly anxious that these two people get involved because they're particularly skilled. Not only that, but they're able to teach others. And the two don't necessarily go together, do they? It could be skilled but not be able to teach. But the people that God particularly put his finger on were those who were both skilled and able to teach others how to do it. And again, that's another feature of this. And certainly it should be a feature of the way that we go about this process. And we've been very blessed, really, by having right people in place at the right time as this process has unfolded. We have a Christian solicitor. And it's so great to be able to sort of end our emails together saying, in Christ, in Christ. (laughs) And um, this recent turn of events where we got to a point of not only agreeing in principle a sale but actually agreeing a figure for that sale and he was so pleased with the story and the way that we'd gone about it he said I'd really like to preach on this in my church situation I won't mention names I really want to preach on this I thought wasn't that great to have a Christian solicitor who was skilled to do the job but also had a heart to understand what the job was about from the Lord's perspective Willing hearts are needed. Chapter 25, verse 2. That's why I wanted that particular passage to be read. Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering from me from each man whose heart prompts him to give. Some of you might think, Old Testament, wasn't that all about laws and commands? And here, this passage is completely rich in the idea of a heart's response to God. These people are responding to God. And he's saying, I don't just want offerings. I want offerings that you're willing to give. As your heart prompts you to give. So these people aren't so long ago from us, are they, after all? They have that nice relationship with the Lord. And... uh, There's just a repetition of that in chapter 35 again and again. Willing, 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 willing. That's what God wants from his people. God's provision. This is a lovely thing. Uh, Don't worry about verse 3. 
Where are they going to get all this stuff in the wilderness? They're in the desert. They can't go to Next or CNAs or, you know, to get the fabric. They're just standing there in the clothes that they came out with. Ah, actually not. Actually not. Because Exodus 12 verses 33 to 36 tells us something that amazingly happened immediately after they, before they came out of Egypt. So please turn to that because you'll be encouraged by this particular little story. I'm sure you're aware of it. But you see a purpose of God in this. Exodus 12:33 to 36. This was the night, the night of terror and horror and, and bad things going on. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed, and they asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people, and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. It's a great story. They're slaves in Egypt. They've got nothing. But on the night of their deliverance, God, with great foresight, encourages them to ask the Egyptians, and the Egyptians give them the gold and the silver and the clothes, the clothing. And here they are lugging this around in the desert for a period of months or so, and then God says, this is the reason why you brought this material out, so that you can make it as an offering for the building of the tabernacle. And I want to say, because it prompts me to say this, that you may well have received things in your past and you're wondering what to do with them. Why have they been given to you? What is the purpose for some of your family heirlooms or even a legacy? Well, it could just be, it could just be that God is putting his finger upon those things and saying, this is what I want of you. You've looked at this stuff, and you wonder why it's there, why have I got this? Well, it may just be that God is saying, I would love you to make that as your free will offering to me. And so we read in chapter 36, verses 2 to 7, this is what happened. Then Moses summoned Bezalel and Ohliab and every skilled person to whom the Lord had given ability and who was willing to come and do the work. They received from Moses all the offerings the Israelites had brought to carry out the work of constructing the sanctuary. And the people continued to bring free will offerings morning after morning. So all the skilled craftsmen who were doing all the work on the sanctuary left their work and said to Moses, the people are bringing more than enough for doing the work the Lord commanded to be done. Then Moses gave an order and they sent this word throughout the camp. No man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing more because what they already had was more than enough to do all the work. It's a lovely story, isn't it? A great, a great endeavor, a great construction. And so we've got this target of 162,500 pounds. And we're trying to be realistic and say, right, we'll have a gift day at the end of November and we want to raise 40,000 pounds. We'll have another gift day at the end of April next year we want to raise another 40,000 pounds. That's 80,000. We've already got 12,000 in the bank. That leaves 70,000. We're going to take that as a loan. But wouldn't it be great if we had 150,000 pounds coming by April next year? And I had to stand up here and say, no more giving. No more giving. Enough has been provided. See, that's the way God is, isn't he? He's so generous. He multiplies the loaves and fishes and feeds 5,000 people. And there's still stuff over. He's not restricted. 
He's not restricted. You look at your bank balance, you think, what can I do? What is my bank balance amongst such a big number? Lord knows. He can multiply its effectiveness. Next week we're going to have some sort of ideas of what people could do. I want to tell you one little story though. Uh, it's from the Bible here. And it's a, it's a lovely one. It's about the fact that everybody gave one thing. I'm not going to tell you the passage. You're going to find it afterwards. It's headed atonement money. They took a census of everybody. Marked them all down. That's why they knew there were 603,500 men above the age of 20. And uh, Moses, through the Lord, said to everybody, every single one of you is to give the equivalent of six grams of silver. Every single one of you. I don't know what six grams of silver looks like. But I want to say this. In the passage it says that those people, it says the rich are to give how much? Six grams. The poor, the very poorest, are to give how much? Six grams. Everybody was to give exactly the same. And they put all this together in a great heap and they made all the bases for the tent and all the bases for the uh, enclosure of the tabernacle from this offering. It was like me saying to you, by the end of April next year, it would be great. Every single one of us gave 50 pounds. You wouldn't get the target. But it's kind of like that unity of involvement of saying, we're in this together. We're all going to make one gift, exactly the same gift. It was something that everybody could afford. And this is the kindness of God in a way. And the detail. So I encourage you to read this passage again for yourself. Ask God what he would have you to do. And the Lord will look after us. We're going to sing our closing song, which is number 427. Because our greatest song today is the song of the Lamb. And that's...